Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So we've been following news about the war in Ukraine very carefully, like all of you. Of course, we have a special interest in the animals and the people who are caring for them and helping them survive. Our friends at the organization Paws of War are part of the aid operations nearby. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show president of Paws of War, Robert Masseri. Welcome, Robert. Doc, thank you for having me. Robert, when and why did your organization become involved in rescue efforts in and around Ukraine? It started uh, right before the invasion. We had an army unit stationed out of Florida that was in Ukraine, and they reached out to us through our war-torn pups program, where we help um, active military all over the world um, that have rescued a cat or a dog on deployment and then want to bring that animal back with them. So there was a cat by the name of Yogurt that was um, going to be left behind. It became like a little mascot. It became their best friend, and they knew they would not leave it behind and what would happen if they did. So they reached out to us, and we did get Yogurt out of the Ukraine right before the invasion. Subsequently, right after that, we were getting phone calls from people who you know, did some rescue there and foster and things of that nature. And they were asking, what, what are our options to get these animals out? And there weren't a lot of options at that time. So we knew that there was, if, if they were going to invade, we knew it was going to be a big problem. Uh, in our case, specifically for the animals. Fast forward, they did. And all of the people collecting items here in America for animals they couldn't get those supplies over there. Nothing can get there. So we started buying everything from neighboring countries, Poland, Romania, and loading up rented vehicles to try to get supplies into uh, the caravans that were just humanitarian supplies so that people who had pets could escape with something um, that would make things a little easier, especially for cats that, you know, a cat carrier is critical. But we weren't sure if everything was getting to the right people or things were getting destroyed. So we started setting up stations at the border for those coming through with animals. And they were desperate. You could see the, the expressions on their faces. These are the people who traveled two, three days with an animal. They left with an animal. And we seen everything come through from pet rodents to cats, dogs, um, goldfish. We've seen a young girl carrying a goldfish bowl, you know, extremely heartbreaking. But we had supplies waiting for them. And that included uh, winter coats for these dogs. Some of these dogs have never been out of the house. We're talking about a brutal winter. Um, Cats, leashes, uh, cat carriers, dog crates medication. A lot of these animals are on medications, um, vaccines. So it was essential supplies that were needed for some of these people, many of these people to keep moving on into the union. Uh, and many of them were heartbroken because they're, they don't know what to do. They don't know where they were going. They left their sons behind. They left their husbands behind to fight. They left their parents behind, many of them, because they were too elderly to travel. Yeah. Um, but they did everything they could to get that animal out of safety. Many of them, and I say, I say many, but a good amount, were asking us if we can foster. Uh, and there were makeshift kennels and, and shelters set up at the borders, specifically Romania. And some of them were asking, hey, is there any way that you could find a home in America for my dog or my cat? 
And because they knew this is no life for an animal, we don't know where we're going. We have no clue. Right. So it was a battle of a little bit of everything. And then we were able to get back into, we were able to get into Romania. And that was even more heartbreaking. There are dogs everywhere. There are cats everywhere. Um, it's hard to tell what is a stray or an abandoned dog. Uh, they're extremely hungry. They're starving. They see people. They run up to you. They're praying. You have something to give them. So we, my team started breaking dog, just bringing dog food and breaking bags open right in the street. There are families that we, we went and visited. Our teams went and brought them supplies, dog food, cat food, all the necessities that they need. And we're praying. So these people now have 60, 70 dogs, some of them. They started out with two dogs. They started collecting neighbors' dogs that were leaving. So now they're in a situation where they have their responsibility of 60 animals. Tomorrow, they may have to evacuate. So it's really a complicated process right now to go in the Ukraine is to keep trying to get as much dog food, cat food and supplies into the country. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have a lot of people who had farm animals and it, in, in the rural parts, it wasn't unusual to have, a, you know, a, a local farm, a small farm with, you know, uh, 10, you know, head of, of cattle and what have you. And we're now trying to arrange to get these animals out of the country and into a, a safe, ever safe environment where they'll never go to slaughter. Um, they'll live a, a safe life. And that would be in Romania and Poland. But it's a big undertaking. It's, it's something that I have never seen. And I've done a lot of rescue in my life. And we bring animals out of every country in the world from military members. We have never witnessed anything like this. So you spoke about the families that brought their pets with them out of Ukraine. Is it your impression? Did a lot of families have to abandon their pets when they left the country? There's no question. Uh, you know, a lot of these people, um, we spoke to one woman um, and she told one of our members on the ground that she had a dog that she was visiting, bringing the dog every week to the vet. The dog had serious complications. The dog had really bad hip dysplasia and she didn't know what to do. She couldn't carry the dog. The woman was, they told her the woman was very frail. Um, so you have a lot of cases like this metal yeah. case. Yeah. Remember this country was very, very like us in America. They were big animal lovers. So just imagine having to leave your house for one day, you know, never coming back for one day, what you would think and have to do prepare for your pet. And for many of us, that have dogs or cats that, you know, are not vet friendly and you have to take an animal to a vet. What's that like? You know? So picture trying to travel with an, a dog or a cat for two days, whether it's train, whether it's a bus, very difficult. Yeah. So there's a lot of animals that have been abandoned and we have been strategizing all evening uh, and all morning for the last three days to figure out how to get the right amount of surplus of food into these areas. But we're dealing with, you know, people being killed, children are being killed, bombs are constantly being dropped. But our mission obviously is animals. That's, that's our mission statement. And we are trying to do everything we can, not only to help the animals that are coming over the border, but as many animals as we can in Ukraine. We were able to take some animals out of Ukraine, but we're not quite 
prepared and equipped for that yet. So it's different vehicles. It's, you know, so uh, fortunately we were able to get cats and dogs out. We were able to get some horses out. We were able to get some live cattle out, but it's a small, it's a small amount of animals compared to the, the need. We have read that neighboring countries and other European countries are strongly cooperating to accept families with animals. Is that what you're witnessing, Robert? So, so far, yes. And that's been the uh, idea of the, the welcoming from the, the, the people welcoming everyone in. But I think that the people who are coming out of Ukraine and going into whether they're going into Romania or Poland, it's a very complicated process. And it's not just like, OK, just jump in that Uber and, you know, um, the Jones family seven miles up the road are going to welcome you and your, and your two dogs or your cat. doesn't work that way. There's a serious process involved. There's, they're, they're living in tents. These animals are stressed. Cats are stressed. It's a big process. So we're trying to alleviate as much as that as possible, even by fostering some of these animals. But the, the, the numbers are staggering. The percentages, I, I couldn't give you exactly what the percentages are from the people coming in to the countries with or without animals, but there it's, you know, it's a lot of animals. It's a lot of animals. So I think that the goal right now is to get more people at the borders. And that's what we're working on and more people to go into Ukraine to deal with the, at least the very sensitive, most time sensitive concern is these animals are starving. There's nothing there. Keep in mind, the one thing that Ukraine did have, it had a decent sized stray dog population, but people fed them every day. Yeah. People took pride in feeding them. People would leave their house if they had the flu to feed them. Now those people don't exist. They're not there. So these animals are walking the streets and there's no food source. So that's one of our biggest concerns right now. And we're just trying to bring as many supplies and get as many teams together and we don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anybody knows when this war start, stops. But if it stopped tomorrow, if it stopped tomorrow, at the very least, besides for the people to rebuild, the animals are still going hungry. And that's one of our biggest concerns. So, Robert, is your team and other rescue organizations currently actively going into Ukraine and trying to rescue these animals that are running around and trying to get them out? So our team uh, has gone in and came back out several times. And the next mission has to be a bigger mission, meaning we need more vehicles. It's very, very dangerous. There's no question. Um, and it's also very time consuming, meaning you could spend six, seven hours just getting to one location. So you need to have as much there as possible with you, as many vehicles and so forth. More vehicles we add, the more danger it is. Um, but our plan is to get back in with a big, big load of supplies, certainly dog food. Um, and our partners like um, Animal Rescue out of Jordan um, and the smaller groups that we've worked with over the years, that they will be uh, going back in uh, with a much bigger supply run. And um, we're working on that now. Robert, what can my listeners do? What do the animals need and what do the support staff need right now? So donations is what we need in order to continue the efforts to help the animals coming out of Ukraine and the ones that are still in Ukraine. What's your website? Pause of War, 
www.ghostsandmysteries.org. Robert Mysteri, thank you very much. We all appreciate what you're doing so much. No, doctor, thank you for uh, sharing this. And I hope that this war comes to an end soon. And because we are an animal organization, we are here to do whatever we can. Dr. Lori, thank you for having me. back to the show. So Alaska just had its Iditarod trail sled dog race, making it the 50th anniversary of this race. So for those of you who might not know, the Iditarod sled dog race is an 1100 mile long race from Anchorage, Alaska to Nome, Alaska. The teams racing in the Iditarod consists of one human driver of the sled. He or she is called the musher. And 12 to 16 dogs who are connected to the sled via a series of ropes or lines. And these dogs are forced to run in 8 to 16 days over a grueling 1,100-mile-long terrain with jagged rocks and high winds and dense forest and in sub-zero temperatures. Their poor paws get raw, cracked, and bloody. The dogs often get sick. They get injured. They get extremely stressed and exhausted. They don't want to run anymore, but they're forced to run anyway. They can develop lung damage, stomach ulcers, kidney damage. They can get injured or killed, tangled in the lines. Fractures of muscles, shoulder injuries, tendon tears are not uncommon. Frostbite, hypothermia can occur. You can check out the site called Sled Dog Action Coalition if you want to read stories of the horrible things that have happened to individual dogs related to this race. According to the site, at least 154 dogs have died in the Iditarod, and there are no records kept of how many dogs die in training or after the race each year. You can imagine what happens to the dogs in preparation for this race, can't you? Because we don't know. Or what happens to the dogs after the race, like the ones who got injured or sick during the race? What happens to them? Some say dogs who are deemed too slow to race or are unprofitable. I mean, that's the bottom line here, right? Those dogs are destroyed. An email from former musher Ashley Keith to the Sled Dog Action Coalition explains, quote, When I was active in the mushing community, other mushers were open with me about the fact that larger Iditarod kennels frequently disposed of dogs by shooting them, drowning them, or setting them loose to fend for themselves in the wilderness. This was especially true in Alaska, they said, where veterinarians were often hours away. They often used the phrase, bullets are cheaper, and they noted that it's more practical for mushers in remote parts of Alaska to do it themselves. Over the years, many animal lovers and dog lovers have objected to this race because of the animal cruelty and inhumane conditions, which is inherent in this contest. These dogs are literally forced to run, and in some cases, forced to run to death. If you care to, you can also check out the 2016 documentary called Sled Dogs by Canadian filmmaker Fern Levitt. This film examines the Iditarod and the commercial mushing businesses and raises allegations of animal cruelty among the breeders, trainers, and kennelers. But I'll warn you, it's really hard to watch and hard to want to learn about what really happens behind the scenes. 
Anyway, now that you know a little bit about the Iditarod, what happened this year? Well, according to PETA, in just this year's event, two dogs went missing. A musher was apparently forced out of the race after the dogs he used were found in poor conditions. And nearly 250 dogs were pulled off the trail due to exhaustion, illness, or injury. Before the race even started, dogs were attacked and one dog was killed during training. So all of these things I just mentioned, it's not really new news because these sorts of things occur every year in the Iditarod. But what is new that happened this year is that three of the mushers participated in the race, got penalized. Listen to this. For allowing their dogs to come inside sheltered cabins instead of leaving them outside in the harsh, freezing cold, blizzardy conditions. According to the Anchorage Daily News, three mushers were penalized for taking dogs inside shelter cabins instead of leaving them outside in the storm with winds so strong they whipped up whiteout conditions, a move they say likely saved their dogs' lives. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to us that you saved your dog's lives because our rule number 37 states, and I'm quoting here, rule number 37 states, dogs may not be brought into shelters except for race veterinarians, medical examination, or treatment. So to prevent dogs from dying in the ice-cold, sub-zero, windy storm, these three mushers were fined as their punishments by the Iditarod. You see, because allowing the dogs to rest inside, allowing them to have shelter from the storm, allowing them to sleep and not freeze to death, that gives these dogs an unfair advantage. So the Iditarod is okay with dogs getting hypothermia and freezing to death, and you'll be penalized and fined if you prevent dogs' deaths because that gives them an unfair advantage. Can you believe this craziness? This is the Iditarod. And listen to this. This is good news. This is from U.S. News. Let's see. February 9th, 2022, U.S. News. The hotel that has served for nearly three decades as the Anchorage-based headquarters for the Iditarod Trail sled dog race will end its association with the competition next year. So this was the last year they served as the headquarters. The headquarters is where mushers register for the race and where competitors and fans base their Anchorage stays at discounted rates. Why are they ending their association with the Iditarod? I don't know. The hotel manager claims that the pandemic affected the hospitality industry, so it's not cost effective for him, something like that. However, it just so happens that last year, PETA and other animal activists and dog lovers <laughs> held a protest outside the Anchorage Hotel, protesting the animal cruelty inherent in the Iditarod. So, hmm, it's interesting timing, isn't it? And it's also nice to note that the number of sponsors to the Iditarod race is shrinking. And compared to previous years, the entry fee was up and the purse was down. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. 
Thanks to their unique figure-of-eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise, quick movements, including backwards and upside-down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long, specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than 2 grams. That's less than a penny, and most weigh less than 5 grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip. They often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cord's handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to the show. Incredible animal adaptations. That's the topic of this segment. When we talk about adaptations, we're talking about characteristics that allow animals to survive in their environment. It can be structural, physiological, or behavioral characteristics. Peter, we're going to talk about a few crazy ones, okay? Ready, ready, ready. The Alaskan wood frog. This is a cute little guy, and what he does is he turns himself into a frog-shaped ice cube when the temperatures drop. Mm -hmm. So... Instead of hibernating like many animals do to survive the cold, these frogs find a burrow and freeze. And literally, all their bodily functions just stop working. Digestion, respiration, even their heart stops beating. And then spring comes, the weather becomes warmer, and they slowly thaw. They wake up and begin feeding and mating. Peter, this reminds me of the freezing iguanas in Florida that were dropping from the trees. Did you hear about that story? Yeah, yeah, last couple months ago. Yeah, it was a cold winter in Florida this year, and apparently it got cold enough where the iguanas were found to go into a dormant or cold, stunned state. And then they would drop from the trees where they were living. So you're walking around and you see iguanas lying on their back with four legs up in the air, like looking like they're dead, but they're not. And they remain breathing with their critical body functions still operating. And then they thaw out and wake up when the sun warms their bodies. So it's different than the Alaskan wood frog I was just talking about. This is not an adaptation. Iguanas are invasive to Florida. They're from parts of Central and South America close to the equator where it always stays warm. So they're not used to the cold. And extreme cold could be life-threatening to iguanas. Anyway, they were warning Floridians that if they see iguanas lying on the ground or on the street or sidewalk looking like they're dead, they're not. So don't pick them up. Don't move them. Don't throw them away like trash because when they warm up and wake up, they're not going to be happy. No. The male green iguana, I read about this, can weigh up to 17 pounds. So you don't want one to fall on you. 
17 pounds. They could be five feet in length. And you're right, they are invasive. And uh, Florida in uh, 2021 passed some new regulations. Uh, you're no longer allowed to have iguanas and other lizards, exotic lizards, as pets. And uh, if you have one, you can keep it. It gets grandfathered. So you have to have them microchipped and you have to re-register them every year. Wow. But uh, they are uh, ruining environment, you know, ruining people's yards and... Uh, and their days are numbered in Florida. They're beautiful, though. Yeah. But you wouldn't want them falling on you. <laughs> I don't want them falling. <laughs> Peter, if you're scuba diving and you're about to be stung by a sea creature, would you rather that creature be a stingray or a reef stonefish? Okay, I'll go with stingray unless it's in the heart. The most venomous known fish is the reef stonefish. And if you look this fish up online, it looks like a, a pretty rock. Yeah. They live in coral reefs and their colors fit in perfectly for the environment. And it's able to camouflage itself amongst the rocks and they sit perfectly still on the seafloor. So not only does this help protect the stonefish from predators since they're disguising themselves well, this also offers them a way to get their prey. Because what they do is they just wait, looking like the other rocks and around them and until the prey, usually reef fish, comes to it. And then with its huge mouth, it ambushes its prey and sucks him down. Wow. Sucks it in. <laughs> wow. That is horrible. But wait. So if you're a human and you're enjoying the waters and you step on it because you think it's just a pretty rock at the bottom of the seafloor, well, what happens is the pressure of your foot on their back activates the venom sacs in their in their spines. And this venom is probably the most venomous in the world, and it will likely kill you. So the answer is you would rather be stung by stingray or probably anything else in the waters than this reef yeah. stonefish. So did I just ruin your future snorkeling or scuba plans you yeah. might have in the future? I don't even want to go in the bathtub with that. <laughs> okay. It's horrible. Okay, how about this one? If you're hiking in Australia... And you see a dog-like animal coming at you, intending to bite you. Mm. Would you hope that it's a Tasmanian devil, which typically weighs on average like 20 pounds, so like the size of a small dog? Yeah. Or do you hope it's a dingo, which is a wild dog native to Australia? Okay. I'm going to say, boy, so many questions raised here. I'm going to think the Tasmanian devil has bad mouth bacteria, so you're going to die from infection. But the dingo probably has friends who are going to swarm you and eat you as a pack. So I'll go with the dingo. Yes. Ah. You would like to be bitten by a dingo yes, than that's... a Tasmanian devil. Okay, but because why? Because the Tasmanian devil has the most powerful bite oh, okay. in the world relative to its body size of any living mammalian carnivore. It has a bite strength of 1,200 PSI, pounds per square inch. I'm not sure how strong that is, 1,200 pounds per square inch. But for comparison, the lion's bite is 650 PSI. So the bite on this little 20-pound Tasmanian devil has twice the force. I guess mm. it's it would be force, right? Yeah. Pounds yep. equal to force? Yep. Yeah. And by the way, the hippopotamus has the strongest bite of all land animals at about 1820 PSI. Mm -hmm. We knew a dog that lived in the neighborhood, a little dog, and 
had a pretty strong little bite and had an affinity for like shoes and jeans. And, yes. Uh, and this little dog, our neighbor's little dog with the strong bite, ripped through my favorite jeans of all time. Yeah. You know, when you have these jeans for like two decades, you just love them. They're worn in perfectly uh-huh. for your body. And now they have a hole and you're not wearable anymore. They're not wearable. Hmm. Okay. If an animal is going to chase you in Africa, who would you have a better chance running away from? Okay. A hippo? Or cheetah? Oh, I think cheetahs are fast, so I'm going to say you can run away from a hippo more easily. Okay, so cheetahs are the world's fastest land animals. They can reach speeds up to 70 miles per hour. What can accelerate faster, a cheetah or a Ferrari? Oh, I'm going to go, let's see, with the cheetah. Yes, They can go from zero to 60 in three seconds. Mm. And think of this, Peter, in one stride, one long step, a cheetah can travel 20 to 25 feet. Yeah, that's good. What makes a cheetah run so fast? Well, among other things, like their small, lightweight body, long but huge leg muscles that expand very fast, loose shoulder joints, and their long muscular tail that works like a rudder and helps them maneuver when they run. But another impressive adaptation is cheetahs have super long and flexible spines. So when their spine flexes and then straightens, that actually maximizes their stride length. And there are these YouTubes out there where cheetahs are running in slow motion. They're so cool. Have you seen those? I don't remember. Look at a cheetah running in slow motion and just look at their backs. And you can just see how it extends. And then the back goes way up like a coil spring. It's really cool. And running and their speed is the thing they do. And they do well. And that's their adaptation to survive. They don't fight well. They don't defend themselves well. They're meant to run. Peter, I sent you that YouTube of an octopus changing its color as it's traveling along the seafloor. Yeah. What did you think of that? I know cheetahs involved in this one, but that was just, (laughs) the colors are are just amazing. Amazing. The camouflage. So you might wonder, how do they do that? How do they change colors? And so quickly. Yeah to match so perfectly their surroundings. Well, octopuses like squid and cuttlefish are called cephalopods. And all these guys can change color to match like perfectly to their surroundings. And the way they do this is that they have specialized cells in their skin, which are called chromatophores. Makes sense, right? Chromo in Greek means color and phores means bearing. So they have color bearing cells in their skin that have these sacs that are filled with pigment. And these sacs can be yellow, brown, red, or black in color. When they contract their muscles around the cell, the pigment sac widens. And that's the prominent pigment you'll see on the octopus's skin. And when muscles around the cell relaxes, the pigment sac shrinks and less of that pigment or color is visible. Yeah. Octopuses typically live on the bottom or, you know, just hovering slightly above the seafloor so they can be cruising along and they can use their chromatophores to change their color of their skin to blend in with their surroundings. So they're camouflaged 
and they camouflage themselves into the rocks and corals, and they can also change the texture of their skin to try to match the texture of the surroundings. Is that cool or what? That's pretty neat, wow. So now you know all about chromatophores. Thank you. Okay, so stick around. We have some more neat animal adaptations coming up. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about leeches. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated. Leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re-sewn. The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days, when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. And that is your Animals Today Minute for today. back to the show. So for our listeners that don't know by now, Peter and I moved from Palm Springs, California to the beautiful state of Arizona. And one animal here in the Sonora Desert that we come across every now and then that did not exist in the Southern California desert is the javelina. And indeed, javelina are native to the Arizona Sonora Desert. And Peter, after we saw that family of javelina last month when we were wa out walking, yep. I was curious to know specifically what javelina eat and if they need to drink water, right? And assuming they eat cactus, how they eat these sharp plants without hurting themselves. That's interesting. Yeah. And before I get into the javelina's adaptation, why don't you tell the listeners about our walking paraphernalia when we take the dogs outside in the mornings? Like... What's that thing in your pants that you whip out in case Stop. of a <laughs> Well, it's true that uh, even on uh, residential sidewalks, you're usually surrounded, unless you're downtown, you know, surrounded by shrubs, and that is a lot of uh, cacti and a lot of sharp things. And particularly the cholla 
variety of, of cacti, and there's a couple of different varieties here. They uh, have a tendency to sort of give off little versions of themselves, right? I don't know exactly the, the term, but they are very clingy. And you can just see them uh, if you look carefully on the ground where you think you're walking safely. And there's just this, uh, you know, round, spiky thing that's really nasty because uh, they're hard to get off and they hurt like like heck. So And they're fine. They're very, very fine, right? They're fine. And uh, to get them off, you just don't want to touch them. So you need to use a tool. Right. And I am aware of two tools that people carry with them. So now I'm carrying my needle nose pliers, maybe four or five inches. And uh, sometimes we let the dog carry it in the pouch, but usually it's my pocket. And that is helpful to grab or flick the uh, little nasty off your foot or dog's paw. And some people advocate using like a hair comb and that works ni nicely too. I've seen that. So that's our adaptation to uh, getting around. So tell me about the javelinas. Though. Okay, but wait, let me go back to that because that's a very important point. It's better than, like you said, it's very sticky. So if you try to remove it with your hands, it's going to be stuck into you. <laughs> and if you try to just break it off, you have the risk of breaking off a little piece into the dog's paw or into the dog's and skin. And then you still have to get that thing out. Right, right. So, so pulling gently, it out gently, gently with the needle nose pliers or a comb is a good idea. Yeah. So back to the javelina. Okay. Those of you who might not know what javelina look like, and I really didn't know until I moved to Arizona, javelinas look like small pigs with large heads and long snouts. Is that a good way to describe That's their appearance? That's a good first approximation. Okay. Yes. <laughs> they travel around in family groups, and they're most active around dawn or dusk. Javelina eats certain leaves and shrubs and grasses and lizards and toads and mice and whatever else they might run into, but their favorite thing to eat is prickly pear cactus. Yeah. Do you know what those look like, Peter? I do, little paddles. Paddles, yes. Little paddles with a lot of sharp... Yeah. Okay. So their jaws are well adapted for crushing and slicing, and they have super tough mouths and specialized digestive systems, which allow them to eat this prickly pear cactus and not feel the thousands wow. of tiny spines on them. So they ingest them. Yes. Oh, I just thought maybe they would eat around no, them. No, they ingest them. Gee. And by the way, these cacti are loaded with water, so this gives a javelina a nice source of water as well. I will tell you that other animals eat cactus as well. These include camels, the desert tortoise, rabbits, and squirrels. Yeah. Okay, one more adaptation. Most people know that owls can twist their heads almost completely all the way around. Actually, they can turn their heads about 270 degrees. That's not quite a circle, but pretty close. If you consider how many degrees you can twist your head around rapidly without tearing a bunch of tendons yeah. and severing major and arteries. angle is getting smaller and smaller. Right, right. <laughs> I know. Or you can imagine turning your head too much might prevent blood flow from going to your brain and causing a stroke, right? So how is the owl capable of twisting his head almost completely around and not block off any major vessels? Well, the arteries feeding the brain of the owl are lined up just so that they're not blocked off when the owl twists. So typically vessels get smaller as they get farther from the heart and to an organ like the brain. But in the case of the owl, studies were done over a decade ago on dead owls, and scientists found that the vertebral artery enlarges 
as it approaches the brain. Mm -hmm. So the thought was that these enlarged areas may function as reservoirs for blood so that the brain has extra blood to work with as the head turns, something like that. Interesting. Cool animal adaptations, right? <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Wow. What you got there? Oh, a couple of news items to round out the day. That would be nice. Okay. First to uh, Britain. They are dealing with the problem of frogs and other amphibians getting stuck in roadside drains and getting unable to climb out and ultimately perishing. And that's really harming the population of these sort of semi-urban animals. There's a team, they go by an acronym, W-A-R-T, WART, which is the Warwickshire Amphibian and Reptile Team. And they are installing little aluminum ladders down the drain so that the frogs, as they're, after they fall in, they're able to climb out and continue going to their breeding sites. That's what's motivating them, obviously. Oh, that's so nice. So they're installing them and we'll see if they can maintain the population because, you know, they're so essential to the systems. And we don't want the frogs drowning. Indeed. In Sydney, Australia, everybody knows the Sydney Opera House yes. and the harbor there, Sydney Harbor Bridge. It's one of the most popular tourist destinations and photograph places on planet. Anyway, they have trouble with uh, pesky birds, seabirds, bothering the diners who are eating outside there. Right? We've walked past there. Mm -hmm. So uh, they are employing dogs on long leads with handlers to scare away the birds. And so the consortium of the opera house, the opera bar, and the opera kitchen, three private businesses, they just signed a $376,000 per two-year contract with a organization called Mad Dogs and Englishmen. They supply the uh, protection with the dogs and the handlers and keep the birds away so people can enjoy their, their beer and food. Instead of seabirds just being about while diners are eating, they would prefer to see dogs just running around? You and... know, I wondered about that too. It's quite a, it must be quite a spectacle and you're trying to have a quiet meal or a romantic meal and you're going to get distracted looking at the handlers and their dogs do their thing. Absolutely. So, but, but it seems to work because they just uh, renewed. And it's better than shooting them like a lot of people would advocate. Yeah. Well, thanks for all that, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.